1: dancing in the studio here you can't you can't not dance a little abba come
0: on you gotta you gotta move around
1: maybe uh carol's gonna watch a little mama mia over the long weekend you don't
0: know there's a new one out pecan pie and mama mia i'm in pecan
1: pie there you go yalman onarin is on the phone with us from new york city he's a senior finance writer uh here at bloomberg probably shaking his head not knowing what he's gotten himself into but he does have the most read story on the Bloomberg today. Not surprisingly, he is a man of many most read stories. Uh, Yaman, great to talk to you. Happy Thanksgiving early.
2: Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. So this story
1: is really interesting because we've had a lot of angles on the saga that is General Electric, but this is the Wall Street angle that maybe people should care the most about, and that's about their credit lines. Tell us about what you found.
2: So, you know... um GE typically funds itself through bonds, uh, it has commercial paper, um, it doesn't, you know, big companies in the, in the U.S. do not necessarily typically get loans from, from banks directly. But GE has a sort of a credit line facility that's like a syndicated loan um, that was distributed to, so to the biggest banks, uh, five of the biggest are all involved, um, each in the amount of about $3.5 billion. Um, which is not small peanuts. That's a lot. That's quite a lot of money. It hasn't been drawn on. Uh, it's, it's more for backup when you need the money. But, you know, with all the stuff that's going on in G, that money could be needed and drawn upon. And then these banks would be on the hook.
0: Well, that's what's interesting. As you said, GE has almost $41 billion in credit lines it can draw upon uh, in total if you spread it out among these banks. I mean, the concern is, right, what I love about this story is GE is the kind of corporate client you wanted years ago, right? Like dependable, you know, top credit quality and all that good stuff. And now it's a different scenario, uh, Yaman. And, you know, now these banks, I mean, can they retract the credit lines or it's not that
2: simple? Um, it 's not that simple they they cannot um, decline their commitments it 's a commitment uh but it 's very short term so um you know this it, it, one of them um actually like part of the 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 twenty billion that that we had a chart on in our article um, it 's a term facility which, if not drawn upon in in march would would not even be there. Um, the other one has reduction terms that sort of make it go slowly lower. Um, so it's, and, and, and they, bo- they all sort of mature twenty 2020, twenty twenty one Um, and that's not that long either, but of course the problems that are going on with GE are, are current, right? Right now, yeah, are, right. are they really able to make it? Uh, if they kind of muddle through for a few years, these things probably will not be renewed all, you know, or they'll turn around and be a great company again, and then they'll renew them. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough position to be in. And, and as you said, um, GE was a great company a few years ago, but GE was was already on the on the decline earlier this year, and mm-hmm. one of these facilities was signed middle ah. of, of uh, 2018, so That's it's not that old, yeah. right? Um, and so the banks still maybe thought this is okay, and you know we had Gorman yesterday on Bloomberg TV, who basically you know said, well, GE is a great quality. Credit, it's still you know investment grade. Don't worry about it.
1: Right, James um, Gorman, the the CEO of Morgan Stanley, we should know.
2: Right, but I you know and and the people are that unfortunately people are worried, and this is what happens right when when markets start turning right you know and when interest rates set, interest rates start rising is is the want the companies that are not as good right. at, at doing what they're doing, they, yeah. they start becoming tough. Yaman,
0: yeah, I what's right. interesting too is you, you talk about that the commitments that these banks are making can make up an outsized chunk of their portfolio. Speaking of Morgan Stanley, you say their share of the first GE facility amounted to 6% of its investment-grained lending commitments at the end of September. Goldman Sachs, it was 4% of the bank's high-grade book. So that's when it starts to get interesting when you think about the potential for uh, the bank's exposure and the bank's risk.
2: Yes, I mean, those, if again, something those goes are wrong. small numbers. And, and, and again, you know, the numbers are big, especially for Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, because those are the smaller uh, of the of the big five, right? Uh, mm-hmm. For J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, they have much bigger loan books. Um, right. And and so in it, this this number, a couple billion dollars, would not look as bad in it. Um, but for Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, which are more, you know, capital markets companies, they, they do... Uh, lend uh to to their corporate clients the same way they they arrange bonds and stocks is shares for them but um it, it's a it's a bigger portion of what they do in lending and um and you know we've we've seen similar things when when um you know a lot a lot of the big banks had had uh, loaned to um uh the South african company that had the, that had a accounting yeah. uh, uh crisis accounting scandal and and they lost that money they had to write it off and because that money wasn't there so these yeah. kind of big credits sometimes do slip do, uh, yeah. and, and get lost, and, and the banks take the right down and they continue. Right. Uh.
0: Especially <laughs> if things start to kind of come undone. That's when you start to get a little bit nervous and you want to know the exposure. Yeah, you know the song. Uh, Where are your five golden rings? <laughs> there's my five golden rings. Keep in mind that consumers are going to spend more than 4% more than last year during the winter holidays, an average of, well, a little bit over... $1,007, $1,007, according to the National Retail Federation. And if you're thinking of hiding the 12 days of Christmas under your tree, well, it's going to cost you a little bit more this year. But Is not it... 4% more. <laughs> no. And here we're to get into this, Amanda Agati, co-chief investments strategist over at PNC with us on the phone from Philadelphia. So first of all, if I did buy or Jason bought the 12 days of Christmas, all of it, it's
3: going to cost us a little bit more than last year? That's right. It is going to cost you a little bit more, to the tune of about 1.2% more. So the price tag for the PNC Christmas Price Index this year is
1: $39,094.93. So I love how you guys do this, and there is something really important underneath it because it allows you to explore all these different aspects of the economy, You know whether it's the price of gold or the price of labor. What was the thing that really jumped out at you as the biggest change one way or the other?
3: Well, I think the, the biggest change uh, really is not specific to this year. It's just sort of been this evolution over time from the cost of goods mm-hmm. um, in the in the index kind of being the leader, uh, the most expensive component overall, to now the services really leading the charge. And I think that's really sort of indicative and sort of reflective of how the U.S. economy has actually evolved over so the time period that we've been tracking the index. The
1: services we should, you know, point out are the drummers drumming, the pipers piping, lords a leaping, ladies lords a dancing, are exactly. milking, etc. There's a lot of exactly. sir. I hadn't really thought about that. There's a lot of people uh, in service jobs in this index.
3: That's right. There absolutely are, and uh, wages are on the rise. So no surprise we should see, um, you know, a significant increase in in those various categories uh, for 2018.
0: It is so reflective of what's going on in the broader business community. We've got um, the Year Ahead event coming up at Bloomberg next week, and it's the Year Ahead issue uh, for the magazine. And Jason and I have been talking to CEOs, and we will next week as well. And I was doing a prep call, phone call uh, just yesterday, and uh, the number one concern on this CEO's mind that uh, we're going to be talking to, said it was finding workers, the workforce. It's just getting tighter and tighter, and especially as everybody needs, like, tech folks and so on and so forth. You know, even kind of basic industries are fighting with uh, super tech and high tech uh, to get tech workers. So it really is about uh, higher wages. Um, it's also, though, when it comes to the 12 days of Christmas, those geese, they're
3: costing us more? They are, absolutely. They're the single biggest driver um, of the increase year over year. They're up about 8.3%. Um, and this is really after a lull. They, they didn't uh, have an increase since 2014. So we got the increase all in one year.
1: What, and why are the geese up so much?
3: Um, That is a good question. I don't think it's necessarily uh, that obvious. I think it's more of a scarcity uh, kind of concept rather than anything else.
1: So if it was, you know, chickens laying, then it would may- maybe be a little more uh, affordable. Uh, that's great. Yeah, then- I
3: mean, yeah, we've been we've been joking a little bit that this trend toward backyard geese or pets is kind of on the rise, and so they're harder to come by. But hey, not not entirely clear in the science.
1: All those that. hipsters in Brooklyn uh, putting geese in their backyard, I guess they
0: want smaller turkeys. Is all I'm yeah. going to tell you. Mini turkeys. What about the internet? You guys work that into this index, don't you?
3: Yes, yeah, so we always uh, take a look at sort of the cost uh, relative to sort of the traditional index and then versus the Internet. This is obviously a more recent phenomenon. We haven't mm-hmm. been doing this over the entire thirty. The pilgrims weren't period. doing this
0: kind of thing. I'm just
3: telling you. Yeah, so um, the Internet prices actually tend to be higher relative to the more traditional index, and that's really a function of travel and shipping related costs so that's a little bit at odds with how we think about the internet and internet shopping more broadly because as you might imagine you can get a lot of free shipping um and discounts around shipping, but because of the specialty nature of most of the goods in the index, um, the, the shipping component and, and freight component can be pretty substantial. So we're looking right. at a little over $2,000 um, more than the in-store purchases of the index. And I
0: love that you guys do a calculation that if you actually did um, the total cost of items bestowed by a True Love, which are, who repeats all the songs, versus it would be 364 gifts and it would cost over $170,000. It's just such That's fun right. stuff. That's <laughs> right. So really
3: got a pony up for yeah. the for that true love. That's
0: Amanda, right. Amanda, thanks so much. Have a great Thanksgiving. Amanda, Gotti, a happy holidays. Co-Chief Investment Strategist at PNC on the phone from Philadelphia. Boy, Jason, if I had a nickel for every time you said, so why are the geese up?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
4: give me a jump. Give me some purity. Give me a chance to
1: survive. I'm just a All right. That song is called Blue Collar Man, and we've been talking a lot about jobs most recently and somewhat seriously when we were talking about the Christmas index and the price of labor and the labor labor shortage uh, that's going on out there. So Kelly Jordan probably didn't expect that sort of introduction. She's the talent leader of New Collar Initiatives at IBM. Joining us on the phone from Armonk, New York, lovely Armonk. New York. Kelly, great to be with you. Thanks for joining us on this Thanksgiving Eve.
4: Thank you for having me, and that was quite an introduction.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so new collar, tell us what that is.
4: New collar is a phrase that we coined about two years ago. It was actually coined by our CEO, Jenny Rometty, to talk about the variety of jobs that exist today that aren't really blue collar, aren't really white collar, but that require some amount of skill. They don't necessarily require a four-year degree, though, and that's a big difference for us. It's jobs that are found across the tech industry that really prioritize that idea of skill over an educational pedigree.
0: And so what has that led you guys at IBM to do? Because my understanding is you've got an apprenticeship program. It's, I think, just coming up or hitting its one-year anniversary.
4: It absolutely is, and the timing was great since November's Career Development Month as well. Um, For us, The idea of New Collar has really meant focusing on requirements for jobs, uh, requiring that we don't necessarily always mandate a four-year degree, but really focusing on the skills. And then as well, also launching our apprenticeship program. We launched it last October. It's a fantastic earn and learn program, as we call it. Uh, Candidates come in, they get hired for a variety of apprentice roles. We have over 24 at this point. Um, And they learn on the job while taking all sorts of classroom instruction, working side-by-side with IBM managers and mentors over the course of a 12-month program. Um, We started with seven last October. We actually have 183 that will be on board by the end of this year. We're hoping to more than double that program next year. It's been just such a fantastic uh, talent pipeline for us, bringing in candidates from community colleges, transitioning military veterans, and even career reinventors, folks who have had a prior career in a field like teaching or nursing, who've now wanted to transition to be software developers. Well,
1: Kelly, I'm I'm glad you mentioned sort of where you're sourcing from because it leads to sort of an uh, obvious question, at least to me, which is uh, what do you make of the state of uh, kind of secondary education or sort of collegiate level uh, education uh, from your perspective? Because we hear a lot about the cost uh, of college and also that a lot of college graduates are coming out, maybe not with the exact right skills that they need. So how do you bridge that?
4: We're certainly not deprioritizing a university education, but we're trying to make people aware that there's just so many other paths An apprenticeship, to us, is a great alternative. You can come in with some amount of skill, regardless of where you've learned that, and build and develop over that apprenticeship period. Um, We're still hiring candidates coming out of traditional four-year universities, but we've really opened up that aperture to allow candidates from all sorts of non-traditional backgrounds we might not have historically considered.
0: You know, it's kind of interesting, and Jason and I have had a lot of conversations, I think, with individuals, that um, we do understand that there is uh, a lack of workers, there are openings, there's lots of job openings, openings and there's this skills gap and companies are really stepping up with their own programs and we've even heard about companies kind of sharing what they're doing with other companies to kind of help reduce that skills gap that's out there so i mean ideally what are the kind of people that you are looking for uh, to enter into this apprenticeship program
4: we are looking for candidates that have just a desire to be lifelong learners Every single one of our roles may have a different technical requirement, perhaps it's data analytics or a particular coding language, but one thread that runs through all of them is that idea of soft skills. So Mm -hmm. being a lifelong learner, really having fantastic communication skills, collaboration skills, teamwork, adaptability, um, and a growth mindset. This is an opportunity to grow and challenge yourself, to be in an area that might be a little bit uncomfortable as you're growing and learning. um, But that's what we have found to be the most successful candidates for our program.
1: And Kelly, I mean, this is obviously coming at a time where companies like yours are are having to shift their workforces a little bit uh, and mm-hmm. adapt people to new jobs as the market, you know, moves in various uh, and and sundry d- different ways. What do you sort of deprioritize, or is this just an add-on uh, in terms of the types of training that you do?
4: I think it's certainly an add-on. Um, there's a lot of data out there right now just around the tenure of skills with the rate of change today in the technology industry, skills can become a little stale. And so having the opportunity to find new ways of building new skills and growing them is just a fantastic solution for for any company, and that's what we're seeing with the apprenticeship program.
0: Do you plan to grow this program, uh, offer up even more?
4: Absolutely. Uh, we're hoping to at least double the size of our program next year, add additional roles, expand to new locations, and we're also very interested in sharing what we've learned with other companies. We have found this to be a fantastic solution for us, and we feel like the idea of apprenticeship can be a solution for most companies. We've uh, you know, used it in various roles, anything from software engineering to cybersecurity to project management. Um, And so it's really an opportunity for any company to bring in new types of talent and build skills from within.
1: Kelly Jordan is talent leader of New collar Initiatives, that's new, N-E-W, collar Initiatives, at IBM, joining us on the phone from Armonk, New York. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date, and have a happy Thanksgiving.
0: I was thinking about that meeting we had a few. Thank you. Have a great holiday. I was thinking about, Jason, the the meeting we had a few months ago, and forgive me, the name is escaping me, but um, basically an individual right there looking at what companies are doing in terms of... Uh, retraining workers, how to train workers so that they can fill jobs at their companies. And and you are seeing companies kind of share those programs to kind of help one another out. It's kind of interesting. What are you laughing at?
1: (laughs) I'm just laughing at all of the funny things that are happening today uh, here on Thanksgiving. Little Thanksgiving Eve.
0: sherry that you're not telling me about. No, or
1: I'm just I, I'm laughing about the fact that we were somehow able to bridge that conversation with the twelve days of Christmas. I'm still thinking about what it would take to hire some lords of leaping. You know, like what do they go for? Is that a new collar job? I don't know. That could have been something that we asked. Uh, I don't know.
0: You're gonna have to work on your leap a little bit. Yeah,
1: I know. So almost I, there. Me?
0: No, not you. Oh, but I okay. mean, I'm just saying in general. Like
1: auditioning leapers? Is that what you're? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what you're thinking out We're a little we're, punchy here
0: We're living in interesting times Give it away Give it away Give it away now Give it away Give it away Definitely giving away a lot of stuff. I mean, JCPenney, you think about them as a retailer, Jason, they know a lot about offering up discounts. it's fact, it's customers expect them to offer up discounts. And now it seems like the retailer is giving it all away, going into overdrive. Here to explain, Hema Parmar, consumer retail reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here with us. Great
5: to be here.
0: Good story. I just put it out on Twitter, so check it out, everybody, at Carol Masser. Um, what's interesting is JCPenney, I feel like they keep trying to find themselves Uh, Tell us what's going on. Why are Mm -hmm. they kind of kicking into overdrive?
5: Right. So if you stroll into a JCPenney, typically you'll see some sales. Now you'll see even more sales. Um, It is, you know, Black Friday week coming up. But they also just, they do have a lot of inventory. They're over-assorted. They are trying to figure out how they can get rid of some of the inventory that they have to then bring in some new items. And and some of the issues are, you know, um, not just having all the
0: inventory, but does that really meet the consumer's need and and Mm -hmm. consumer's demand? But And how bad is it to be in a place just before the holidays to be like cleaning out inventory rather than making sure you've got... The shelves stocked with what people want, right?
5: Right, right. and the
0: shelves are stocked, but there,
5: you know, it, it, there's some analysts are questioning whether um, you know it's it's the right thing for for the consumer, um, and you know if we look at their sort of Black Friday week of sales, they've had a pre Black Friday run of sales most of last week. This week, there's Black Friday warm up. Next, uh, the Black Friday sales have begun on the 18th, and the full array of stuff will be available up through the 21st, and um, and then they're actually, good. for the first time, carrying the Black Friday sales onto Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then you have Cyber Monday. So really stretching it out um, over a long period of days, which is not abnormal. We have yeah. seen over the years Black Friday become Black Friday week. Yeah. And maybe even the whole month has just been a month of sales. But uh, what's specific to J C JCPenney is really this need to, to sort out their, their massive inventory and
1: well, and, and one of the things I liked about your story was you, you point out some of the commentary that the new CEO, Jill Soltau, has made. I mean, this is where she's going to sort of make or break this company mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, not this week, but this whole problem of essentially product mix. And never has that been more important as it is now mm-hmm. in a very unforgiving, it seems, Retail environment, you know, we're coming out, and you've been following this much more closely uh, than we have, or certainly than I have. But you know, all these retailers coming out, and even if they miss by a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, they're just getting punished by uh, investors. So I would imagine there's very little margin for error at this point for pennies, right?
5: That's true. I mean, we've seen they they missed on their earnings by a dramatic amount. But to your point, we've seen a lot of retailers post earnings this past week. um, Some of them not doing so well. some doing okay but still investors not happy and they and it traded down because the bar trim press is so high that even if you beat by a bit you still and, and investors will still trade down that stock JC Penney yeah. disappointed a great deal on their comp sales um, and we did see that reflect in the stock price but they're a little over a dollar and they were 80 bucks more than a decade ago so Hema, I love the color that you put in your
0: story cuz you t- You say, you know, you you went through one of the stores, right? I think in Herald Square, and you said what you're seeing is retro logo sweatshirts. You're seeing toilet-shaped novelty coffee mugs and leaves and berries dinner plates. Yeah, that might be good for the holiday. But, you know, it's amazing that how many years this JCPenney story we've been talking about, trying to remake itself, and to come to, again, the holiday season, and you've got this is the kind of stuff that you're trying to get rid of. It's just amazing.
5: It really is. And um, the question is, Will they be able to get rid of this stuff? How long will it take? Right. Because a lot relies on being able to get rid of this inventory, then meet the demand and get new stuff in, and hopefully
0: start to turn the ship around. Because if I'm a shopper and I go in now and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is what they have," I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's you don't, the question. No, but that toilet shaped novelty <laughs> coffee mug, give me a dozen. But the question <laughs> is,
5: if it's at a sale and if it's a drastically reduced price, does that and does that change the consumer mindset? Hey, I, I don't know. Does that Dishware look more attractive if it's super cheap? I'm just <laughs> I'm trying
1: to imagine Carol Master with a toilet-shaped uh, coffee mug. It and, just, a of it. and a dozen of them. And a dozen of them. It just uh, doesn't quite match up. Hema Barmar, a consumer retail reporter for Bloomberg, uh, really good reporting on this yeah. story. JCPenney piles sales upon sale trying to dig out of what one analyst called its abyss.
0: It's abyss. JCPenney shares that, by the way, up 2.3% in today's session but still down about 58% this year. And uh, it's amazing. The retail sector, it's a tough one. Some folks are figuring it out. JCPenney still sounds like uh, Jason. It's still got some work to do. And I think there's a bigger question about, do we still need some of these retailers that are in this space? And maybe that's where JCPenney falls into well, as well. Well, and I
1: do feel like we're also talking more and more about leadership of these companies. Mm-hmm. You know, Obviously, a new CEO there uh, at Penny's got a new CEO coming in, I believe from Tori Birch uh, over at L Brands. And, uh, Is it you know, Tory Birch? Yeah. yeah. It is, uh
5: Victoria's Secret,
1: Roger Secret Yeah. Is, is
5: Victoria Secret, from, yeah. Which
0: so, uh, L Brands owns Victoria's Secret.
5: Yeah. There
1: you go. So, you know, a lot of questions uh, that these guys are going to have to answer as we get into 2019.
0: And digital. They've got to get into digital more aggressively because that's where we're all shopping and that's where you're seeing the growth in terms of uh, the shopping market. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, and you are listening to Bloomberg
2: Radio. I'm my car.
1: This is The Drive to the Close. That punky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg
5: Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Luis Maisel, co-founder, senior managing director at the fixed income investment management firm LM Capital Group, $5 billion in assets under management, joining us on the phone from San Diego. Luis, nice to have you here on Thanksgiving Eve with Jason and myself. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the fixed income world, whether it's uh, government uh, securities uh, or whether it's corporate. When you look at the markets right now, let's talk about the corporate market, the corporate debt market. What is it telling you at this point? There are certainly some concerns, especially as companies have taken on a lot of debt.
6: Well, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, the corporate market, the spreads against treasuries have widened in the last few weeks. A lot of triple B issuance, a lot of companies that used to be very high up in the investment grade spectrum are now very close to becoming high yield. And the demand for this paper has weakened a little bit lately. So a combination of a lot of supply, limited demand, and the brokerage houses not wanting to put much in inventory has created a very, very unstable market where sometimes when you want to sell, there are no buyers. I mean, when you want to buy, there's always a lot of offer, but not a lot of uh, demand when you want to sell.
1: And so what are the implications of that as we finish out 18 and go into 19 in terms of how investors should be thinking about allocation here? Are we going into a essentially a riskier market?
6: It is a riskier market, but at the same time, you're get, you getting a bigger return for your money. You know, when the stock market, as we've seen for the year of 2018, it's basically flat, no return. And in bonds, you can see already 4.5%, 5%. 5%. It makes people think again whether fixed income is not more interesting than variable. So you are taking a little bit bigger risk than you you were a few months or years ago. But at the same time, with the volatility of the stock market, it's still a much more stable market. So what you were giving up before in terms of risk return, you are not giving up that much anymore.
3: When
0: you do look at the fixed income side of things, Luis, um, shorter durations uh, are kind of what you're finding interesting at this point?
6: You know, in our case, in the case of LM, we are short duration. I mean, we're shorter than the benchmark. We see the economy in the U.S. still pretty strong. We see that the Fed is going to go on with some raises, at least three of them over the next six to nine months. So you don't want to go very long because raising rates are the biggest enemy of fixed income. So we feel that you can be a little bit short of the benchmark, still get decent returns, and be prepared to take the jump when the Fed stops raising rates.
1: So, Luis, I I wanted to ask you a a little bit about Mexico. I know uh, that's where you were born, and you keep a close eye on the political and economic seen there. We've been watching that closely, especially with the incoming administration uh, and some of the things that uh, EMLO has been talking about doing and actually has done, uh, especially including the cancellation of this new airport. Help us understand that, especially against the backdrop of the new potential trade agreement uh, between the United States and Mexico and, and how some of the politics and economics play out here.
6: With pleasure, though my crystal ball is a little bit cloudy. <laughs> Join the crowd. Join the crowd. <laughs> you know, uh, the changes that are being brought in by the new trade pl- pact are not much. Mexico went in basically trying to avoid being punished and came out fairly well. Yeah. But there was not a major improvement for Mexico. If anything, if, if, if it had an A grade enough, it probably now has a B minus in the new one. Hmm. But it's okay. They can live with it. The problem with the incoming administration is that uh, AMLO filled it up with either very bright academicians that have never run anything or with dinosaurs from previous administrations that would be better off in a museum. So it's very hard to know which way is he going to go. Right. He's always been known as being very stubborn, and oh, I mean that whatever he wants to do, he does. The case of the airport is a perfect example. They called for a national referendum, on which 0.6 percent of the population voted, less than one percent, and they voted in different cities, not in Mexico City. Right. And the question was biased towards the answer.
0: Right. There was a lot of yep. questions about the legitimacy of, of who was voting or the outcome of that. Uh, and as you say, that canceling of that airport project makes investors a little you know, wary, like what else might come next? Uh, Luis, nice to talk with you on this Wednesday. Luis Mizell, co-founder, senior managing director at LM Capital Group, $5 billion in assets under management on the phone from San Diego.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.